Hello, Vela News listeners. This is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Vela News, coming at you with another Vela News tech podcast. Today, we are talking frames. Now, as as you've probably heard and seen in every review you've ever read about a road bike, stiffness is a thing. Stiffness, stiffness, stiffness. it's got to be stiff, right? But what exactly does that mean? Uh, and and do you really need a stiff bike? And and, and in what ways? Uh, stiffness is such a broad term, and I think we we have sort of gotten to this point where we think lateral stiffness, vertical compliance. It's sort of that cliche, um, and that's the perfect combination. But is that really the perfect combination? Are there other factors that go into it? Do you want a frame that has a little bit of lateral flex? And so I wanted to talk to somebody who actually designs frames and bikes and, and uh, who has a, a good understanding of what actually happens when a frame flexes. So today on the phone, I have Graham Shrive, the director of engineering at Factor Bikes. Graham, how's it going? Hey, Dan. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show today. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a chilly day here in Colorado. It just snowed. So I'm, I'm bundled up inside and not really thinking much about riding, but I'll, I'll, I'll fake it for today. <laughs> today, I just want to sit by the fire and read a book or something. Um, but Graham, you know, you've, can you give us a sense first before we get started of like what, um, what bikes you've worked on and, and designed and, and um, you know, what your history is a little bit? Yeah, so I got my start uh, in the bicycle industry just working at shops and racing um, uh, throughout the early parts of my engineering career. So uh, I've ridden and raced on all different kinds of bikes uh, going back 20 plus years um, through all the different eras of aluminum and scandium and carbon and then RTM carbon and then uh, everything else in between um, and started to develop some real strong preferences uh, for what I liked and didn't like at that point. Um, And then kind of fast forward that tape a little bit and about 10 years ago or so I joined Cervelo uh, up here in Toronto um, when they were based out of Canada and uh, had the real distinct pleasure of working with some extremely smart guys uh, right off the hop there, uh, particularly focusing on Project California, um, you know, with uh, Don Guichard and Richard Matthews and some other really talented engineers who really well had a good understanding of stiffness. And what they did early in the process is they actually took a bike, an aluminum frame, and they put strain gauges all over it. And a strain gauge is an engineer's tool effectively that measures the amount of displacement in a very, over a very small distance by using um, uh, basically a conductive uh, member that stretches a little bit as you, as you bend the frame. Mm-hmm. And by measuring the resistance of that, because as a, as a piece of copper gets longer, it, it tends to gain more, it gains a bit of resistance. You measure that increase in resistance, you can understand how much the frame is displaced. And then from that, you can start to understand how stiff the actual frame is. And the real key thing with that was what uh, what Don was able to do down there is is he was able to understand how to link that frame's performance under a rider to the testing methods that you're using. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, Tour Magazine was really kind of the hot ticket in town. Um, you know, there was there was all those scores that were going around, and what they would do is two different kinds of stiffnesses. Uh, one one called torsional stiffness, which effectively mimics pulling really hard on the handlebars and then measuring uh, the displacement where the fork would be. And the other one is bottom bracket stiffness. Uh, and bottom bracket stiffness is that sensation you get when you're climbing a really steep hill and you get out of the saddle and the bike feels like it's going to race forward or sort of sort of leaps ahead with every step that you get in bikes that have really high BB stiffness, uh, like the RCA, for example, or others. Um, and torsional stiffness comes into play when you're going around corners. Uh, and so, you know, within that minutiae, it, it really hasn't changed a whole lot since that time, you know, 10 plus years ago. Uh, where you measure those two distinct things and then you sort of tune them to suit the ride. Um, the real difference is, is that there's some variability in the way that those things are measured. 
Um, there's a fairly healthy debate in the industry among things like, uh, you know, do you include the fork as part of that? Or are you better off to use a steel dummy fork that, that just kind of neutralizes that? Um, where should you apply that load and where are the degrees of freedom or where do you allow the bike to move when you're actually testing it? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of my background with stiffness and, and over the last 10 years or so, I've built all kinds of different, um, frames with different stiffness profiles. And, and again, I've had the real pleasure of working with some excellent athletes over the years. Um, particularly, uh, Mark Cavendish had a, a really, really solid understanding of stiffness. Um, and he provided some really insightful things that he said over the years. Sometimes those weren't, you know, it needs to be 4% more or less. Uh, but he would, you know, he, he had a colorful way of expressing what he liked and didn't like. And, and the thing I really respected about him, uh, first and foremost, is that he, he could actually tell the difference and he would always make sure to articulate it, um, you know, usually in a, in a pretty good fashion that you could, you could use as a workable input to a frame design. Not like just a straight up punch in the face or anything, just... <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, he's actually, he's a really, no, he's he's a really just, nice guy. And I yeah, think I he's definitely yeah. one of the, one of the, uh, I'd say, I'd say one of the most talented riders I've worked with in the ability to, to pick out, uh, what he's feeling. And, and as you said, sometimes it comes out in a, in a bit of a strange way. Like he identified on one bike, uh, that he didn't like it very much because he said it stood up on him in sprints. And, you know, that was a really interesting way to describe it. And it took me quite a while to sort of internalize that and, and crunch on it and, and think about what was it, what was he feeling and what, what could we do to change that feeling? And what I finally came up with is that my theory was that he was actually displacing the bottom bracket significantly enough because he's got so much power yeah. that when he flips the bike back over to the other side, that, uh, opposite reaction then returns the frame in this, in the opposite direction, resisting his ability to flip it over. Cause he really does rock the bike quite a bit when he yeah. sprints. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's that translated into more bottom bracket stiffness, which was then later deemed to be acceptable. And that, that problem went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's a lot of the the I guess the challenge with stiffness is is tying that uh, experience on the bike to you know what you're feeling mm-hmm. to actionable things that you can change in a factory setting and then you can measure and, and verify that they're consistent and that they make sense. Yeah, and, and well, so there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to I want to kind of take a couple steps back, but before we do, um, can I tell you a, a funny Mark Cavendish story? The uh, the first time I met uh, Mark Cavendish was at the 2015 tour. And everybody had kind of warned me. He said, you know, Mark, Mark can be kind of surly and, you know, watch out and be, be, be aware. And uh, I said, okay, okay, okay. So we, we went to one of the team hotels and, and I was walking toward the front doors of the hotel and Mark Cavendish was standing there and he pulled open the door for me and held it, let me walk through, turned around and said, hi, I'm Mark and shook my hand. I'm a nobody at this point. <laughs> like I, I'm just a guy with a camera. The most pleasant interaction. How are you doing today? I mean, just struck up a conversation. And I, and I was like, this is the guy I'm supposed to be afraid of. <laughs> this was actually a very pleasant conversation. And, and every interaction I've had with him has been like that. He's been very pleasant and, and quite articulate, too. Uh, so I think that's that's a key component here is that a lot of the input you get from pro riders has to be sort of articulated in a way that an engineer can then take that information and translate it to changing the quality of the ride. And I think, you know, that goes back to what you just said. There's different types of stiffness. There's the torsional stiffness. Um, there's the lateral stiffness and the vertical stiffness. Um, can we sort through those a little bit and kind of give people a sense of, uh, I, I think the most confusion is probably between, uh, lateral stiffness and torsional stiffness. Um, can you kind of separate those two out a little bit? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And just to your point there, uh, you know, Rob, the owner of factor, uh, Rob Jatelis kind of jokingly refers to my job as sorting out the, which 90% 
a feedback from pros to throw in the garbage can and which 10% <laughs> is, is really a gem yeah. uh, and, you know, figure out what that means. And, yeah. and you know, I, that, it's a good anecdote about Mark because that's absolutely the Mark that I've met for the most part, you know, except for sometimes when maybe a piece of equipment wasn't at his standards, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, that's our job to take that input and fix it. Sure, right? sure. So, I've seen that side uh, of him too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, you, you can't fault somebody for that. No, right? not There's at all. Races, so. Yeah. And we, you know, the, the really interesting thing now is we've got a new set of riders to work with as well. And I'm super happy to hear the other day that Alex Dowsett is, is staying on with the team. Yeah. Um, we've had quite a bit of work with him. Uh, you know, so we're, yeah, a lot of exciting stuff there too with, with ISN. Um, you know, of course, Chris Froome coming on the team and Mike Woods, uh, that'll be, you know, Patrick Bevan. There's a, there's a big cadre of riders that are going to really push the limit for us. And yeah, I mean, as, as we said, maybe some of those conversations might be challenging as we get the products to where they really want them to be, mm-hmm. but that's how you get better. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so again, just to, just to clarify the point, um, torsional stiffness and lateral stiffness, can you kind of sort through those so that we have an understanding of how they're different? Yeah, for sure. So quite straightforward, uh, torsional stiffness in my mind, and you know, it, it could be, um, maybe someone explain it differently, but I think that the outcome of torsional stiffness, which I think is the most relevant thing is the ability for the front and rear wheels to track in plane or the resistance of those parts of the bike to coming out of plane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always use my hands to, it's hard to do that on a podcast to explain it, but you know, and that's, and what the outcome of the, of torsional stiffness is or lack thereof or too much stiffness is that you induce uh, uh, oversteer or understeer into the bike. So much the same as chassis stiffness in a vehicle can affect the way that the, the vehicle turns in a, yeah. in a uh, going around a corner. Um, it's very similar with torsional stiffness in a bike. Uh, and, you know, if you have torsional stiffness that's too low, uh, you can frequently get yourself into a situation where you set up and you're going around a corner. And what ends up happening is the front and the rear wheel start to come out of plane. And then you tend to understeer. So you've set up for a certain amount of, of you know, your mind has already processed the amount of, of handlebar degrees uh, turn that you need to do. So I didn't explain that very well. But um, and your body's already compensated by leaning mm-hmm. and you know where the grip is and your mind's done all these calculations at the same time. And then if you're in that corner and the bike doesn't have sufficient torsional stiffness then something unexpected happens and you introduce a variable uh, and that variable is typically that the bike kind of comes unwound mm-hmm. uh, and you start to not have enough, um, you know, not enough lean angle or not enough uh, input from the steering to be able to go around that corner in the fashion that you had intended. Um, so while that may be true, the opposite's also true is that if you set up it and you go into a corner on a bike that's crazy stiff, um, you know, your mind kind of processes it and you're ready to go through that corner and then you input the amount of steering you need. And in fact, now you've gone, oh boy, you've got way too much bar displacement or, you know, you've overridden the limits of your tire or any other number of bad things that happen in corners, um, which cause you to oversteer. And in that case, you know, then you're, you're putting too much work into it and now you're going to not match the radius that you want. Right. And, you know, all these things are compensated by the body, like very, very quickly, uh, you know, very subconsciously, I'd say for most. And what the net result is, though, if you have too much or not enough, is that you just go slower. Mm-hmm. Um, so you either apply the brakes to get yourself out of that situation. You won't go into the next corner as hot. You'll just generally lose confidence. And so that's, as a bike designer, the number one thing we're trying to do is to try to give you a confident sensation when you're going into those corners. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can very much overdo torsional stiffness. Um, you know, and there's some, I'm sure you've written some examples of that. There was, I mean, I don't want to name any names, but there was definitely about six or seven years ago, there was a bunch of bikes that came out that I would think probably just took direct input from pro teams, probably bigger Belgian guys, and they started to overbuild them, which you can do with carbon. And those bikes were stiff. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, there is, you know, it's a bit contentious, but there is some correlation with increasing torsional stiffness uh, and discomfort. 
Um, so you do start to get into a situation where the bike gets a little, you know, you can say it's a little bit bangy or a little bit jarry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start to get those those aches in your neck and the aches in your hand and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so you know there can be too much of a good thing. Now lateral stiffness um, is, you know, it's it's linked or it's coupled, we would say, but it's a bit of a different thing, especially how you measure it. Um, so lateral stiffness would be the side to side stiffness. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that's on a fork is is really easy to measure. You you typically just take that fork in isolation. You apply a load to the outside of the fork tip, and you measure the displacement. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the one of the primary reasons that we actually decouple that from torsional stiffness when we're measuring it, particularly with forks, is because you have the degree of freedom at your hands, uh, and your hands are doing something. So you've got a dampening effect from your hands, and you can also spin that that bike around. So it doesn't translate that torsional load very well. Right. Uh, there there is uh, some correlation with actually measuring steer tube displacement when you load the ends of the fork, so the steer tube will actually bend inside the frame. Mm-hmm. And that does correlate somewhat to uh, tying lateral stiffness or coupling lateral stiffness to torsional stiffness. But, you know, in a factory setting, it's a bit challenging to get a measurement from that. So, you know, we usually use lateral stiffness as, as the, the fork legs. And then, in, in effect, the bottom bracket stiffness is also a form of lateral stiffness. It's a usually applied at an incline. Um, so usually, you know, because the bike would be typically leaned over. So you usually apply that load on an incline. Mm-hmm. Um, 15 to 30 degrees depending on your test protocol like the tour magazine protocol is 15 degrees um but that's a form of lateral stiffness uh but you know again not so coupled with with torsion yeah and you know and i think you've basically just answered my second question but um to go a little deeper into it so we've been conditioned to believe that stiffer is always better um but that's not necessarily true there are instances in which frame flex uh in in certain directions can be helpful and i think earlier you brought up the exa- before we started recording, you brought up the example of a, a, a steel frame and why do they ride so well? And, and that might come back to how the frame flexes. So I guess the question uh, to you know, clearly ask is, you know, is there benefits to frame flex that, you know, especially given the fact that you've, you just mentioned that it was definitely possible to go too stiff? Um, you know, we, we already know that, that there's detriment to going too um, flexy. Um, but is there benefit to, to sort of, um, coming off of the, the stiffest you can be? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've all been asked that question or, I mean, certainly I think every bike engineer has been asked the question, well, how did, you know, how did Eddie Merckx win sprints at 2000 Watts on a steel bike if stiffness is so important? And, you know, it's not an easy question to answer. And, And again, it's one of those questions that as an engineer and as a rider and as a, you know, as an end user of these products, you have to you have to give those questions time to percolate and you've got to let them sit there and think a little bit and you've got to have an open mind, you know, because it's easy as an engineer to say stiffer is always better or to get some other, you know, kind of uh, absolutist view in your mind where you think that, you know, this, this is the way, you know, it's, it's the, the joke is, you know, it's like the German engineering, right? Like this is the way it's correct, you know, and it, and it's, as an engineer, it's difficult to, to step back away from that, even though, you know, everything appears to empirically say it's correct. Um, you know, if someone uh, subjectively is out riding the bike, you know, if you have a pro or, or there's someone who's doing something with the bike that, that you can't do, then you need to take that input and, and you need to respect it and you need to try to internalize it and figure out what it means. And that's what sort of led me to this sort of view about how stiffness actually really works when you're riding on the bike. And it answers that steel bike question quite well. What's the most important thing is not so much the absolute values of torsional stiffness or bottom bracket stiffness. It's how they interact and how they work together on the bike. Um, and, you know, what your body will do, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, is you know, your mind's an amazing calculator. It will calculate those trajectories and your velocity and, and the required vector that you need to turn those handlebars on 
to the point where when I built, I, I first built a mathematical model of, of bike handling, I actually eventually just realized that you can remove almost uh, all of those variables. You can remove lean angle, you can remove um, steerer displacement or, or degree of handlebar turning because your mind is going to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because center of gravity starts to play a really big effect into that that discussion. So does tire contact patch and grip. And what ends up happening is your your mind and your body just calculate that for you. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know the other the other really interesting thing too is that if you ride a bike and you just jump on it and off you go, and it's it's got a different stiffness profile than what you're used to, it will feel so squirrely and you'll feel out of control and like you don't know what's going on. But within about half an hour or so, now you're just riding a bike. Yeah. You know, similarly with with steer tube angles and all these things, right? Uh, and so what what you have to kind of peer behind that or sort of lift the curtain on a little bit is what's actually happening when your mind makes that calculation and where is the root of uh, uncomfortable or unpleasant handling uh, because of stiffness. And what that is, is again, going back to that same oversteer and understeer discussion, it's when there's a variable that gets thrown in there that's not predictable. Right. Uh, and that's where uh, if you have, for example, excessively high torsional stiffness but low bottom bracket stiffness and you're in that corner, what it sort of removes is your ability to do micro alterations using your body weight yeah. to to interact and influence the 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 plane that those wheels are on. Mm-hmm. So if you're whipping through a corner and your mind calculates that you're going to be understeering a little bit, in a lot of cases, and you'll see pros do this, really good pros do this, is they start to load up that outside pedal mm-hmm. and they actually displace the bottom bracket sufficiently enough to incline the rear wheel, mm-hmm. and that brings it back into plane, and then all of a sudden they're they're cornering on their perfect apex again. They're not oversteering. And they're not understeering. Now, when you get a bike that has too much of one or too much of the other or not acting in unison with each other, what then happens is it's like the I've had a, another pro describe it to me. He said the bike's just like it's like kicking a brick wall because you just you can't you can't make it do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> and so with factor, what we really try to do with our bikes, particularly the VAM, which is a really light frame at 600 and change grit, mm-hmm. grams, excuse me, and, and somewhat less stiff as a function of that you, you limited what you can do with the material. Uh, is that we try to make sure we maintain that balance. Mm-hmm. And so you'll hear that, you know, we're, we know it's a less stiff bike, but we also hear from tons of riders that it just rides absolutely magically. And we feel quite strongly that it's because we've tied that behavior back to that golden ratio that we've known for ages and ages that artisanal craftspeople have been building into frames since back in the time of Eddie Merckx. You know, that's where things, you'll hear people wax philosophical about, about Columbus Max tubing. You know, and about different different types of bikes, and they'll say, "Oh, there was that one bike that one time that I rode, and man, it was a wet noodle." But I sure love that thing. You'll hear you hear people say that about the old light speeds a fair yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and Alex Howes, uh, he had a hilarious saying. He used to me a while ago. He goes, "Yeah, it was a really flexy bike that he was on." He goes, "But I love riding this thing." He goes, "You're going down the mountain, man, and like the rear wheels going this way, the front wheels going that way. <laughs> it just doesn't matter." It's, you know, so it's. You know, again, it's about that golden ratio of how those those stiffnesses interact with each other. And yeah. again, you know, also that fork lateral stiffness starts to play a, a factor there as well. Mm-hmm. And again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give a predictable feeling. So instead of kind of taking the true magazine test where you just say, you know, okay, this this bike has a 10 out of 10 on head tube stiffness. Okay, maybe it's only got a 7 out of 10 on bottom bracket stiffness and it gets a 10 out of 10 on weight and the other things. What we try to do is take a more holistic look at factor with that and we try to really tune a frame so that it works well together. And that's the fork lateral stiffness interacting with the torsional stiffness of the frame, interacting with the bottom bracket stiffness. And then you can't discount wheel and tire setup as well, which you know are huge factors in that. You talk to the guys ahead and they'll tell you all day long about how the, those wider rims that they pioneered you know, really make big changes in the way that the bike handles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that, that's something we're, we're really excited about with Black Ink as well, which is our sister company, yep. is that we're really working a lot on flange heights, on bracing angles. We're using some novel materials and some spokes, uh, like some carbon spokes. Mm-hmm. And it's all about trying to complement the way that that frame handles with mm-hmm. the way the bike handles and, and, again, get the most out of it. Yeah. And we're going to talk about wheels in a moment because uh, I think that has a big influence on how the frame, you know, we keep talking about, you know, there's, there's the stiffness in the lab and you can get concrete numbers from that. And then there's the ride feel and that's a totally different thing. Um, and I think there's an interplay between what you can do with the frame and what you can do with the wheels. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but before we do that, um, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, carbon frame construction, because I think, you know, in the past when you were using steel or aluminum, uh, you know, you're talking about different uh, wall thicknesses, but mostly you're talking about, you know, different tube shapes and um, and even geometry changes to, to customize that um, that stiffness. Whereas with carbon fiber, uh, there's just so many different things you can do to tailor the, the, the stiffness in different parts of the frame. Um, so I want to talk about that. So one way you can obviously make a carbon frame stiffer, stiffer is to just add... Um, certain types of carbon fiber materials. Um, but there's other ways to increase stiffness or tailor flex to certain parts of the frame. Um, can you give us just a general sense of what are the different ways you can um, change the, the stiffness of a carbon frame? And, and in particular now, you know, with such a, a big focus on weight, doing that without adding a lot of weight to the frame itself. Yeah, I mean, there, you, there's. Uh, if I had a whiteboard, I'd write it out for you. But the, the simple <laughs> beam deflection formula is like the easiest easiest way to describe it. It's a reasonably good analog for what's happening with the tube on a bike, um, you know. And and that's a PL, uh, PL over EI, right? Is basically what it boils down to. And the P is your your body weight. The L is the length of the tube, and that's divided by uh, the modulus. Uh, as well as, and it's multiplied by the second moment of inertia. Mm-hmm. So P and L, you can't really change. You're going to be as tall as you're going to be. You're going to weigh as much as you're going to weigh. Um, but the E and the I, you can definitely change. Um, and that's the modulus, which is, a, you know, you can calculate it as a bulk, bulk modulus, which is the sum of all those different plies of carbon fiber. Um, or, uh, you know, you, you can calculate it individually. Uh, and then the I value is, is what I, I really like to go to because then you get, you get free stiffness out of that. And the I value is quite simply the the second moment of inertia of the cross-sectional area of that tube shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the I-values explains why a, why a C-channel's uh, stiffer than flat plate, you know, why an I-beam's even stiffer yet. And really what it boils down to is that there's what's called a neutral axis on every frame member, tube shape, beam, and girder. And a neutral axis lives in the middle, and it's where the, the loads basically switch. They go from compression to tension, and everything reverses. And the more uh, distance you get from the neutral axis when you apply material or you have a shape, the stiffer it's going to be. Um, so, you know, effectively what you want to do is, depending on the, this certain area on the bike, your round bottom bracket is, is fairly straightforward because it's a lateral load. So you just make that bottom bracket as wide as you can. Um, you know, we just recently switched over T47 asymmetrical on, uh, on our new bike, the Ostro. And the reason is quite simple. It gives you the most width that you can get for a bottom bracket without getting into like really squirrely stuff like chimneys and, and little carbon doodads and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's quite a straightforward uh, lateral bend on there. Now when you move into the down tube and you've got torsional shapes, um, that's where things start to change a little bit because torsional stiffness is is best resisted by a round tube. Um, that's why drive shafts are round, you know, you don't see many square drive shafts mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so that's where things start to get a little bit tricky. Uh, and that's where we start to get some blended shapes. Like on our O2 and our VAM, for example, we use 
kind of like a rough hexagonal shape mm-hmm. um, that transitions from being, um, you know, it's like the bi-ovalized stuff back in the day. That was like the really easiest way to describe it, where it was wider at the bottom bracket and taller at the head tube. Uh, in our case, because as you said, with carbon, we have a lot more advantage there. So we try to get as much material as we can to the outside of that tube mm-hmm. while still keeping it um, you know, in a reasonable shape to take some torsional loads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing with carbon as well is that when you start to work with those really stiff plies, um, you know, especially when you get out of the, uh, it, you start to get into pitch-based fibers and away from pan-based fibers. So that's just kind of when you go into the ultra-high modulus stuff, like above 40 ton, uh, it uses a different process to create that fiber because it's much stiffer, mm-hmm. but that fiber also is much stiffer. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, a piece of 60 ton fiber that's usually a centimeter long, you can hold it out in front of you and it'll go, you know, kind of a foot, like a tape measure sort of thing before it cracks and breaks. Mm-hmm. And then a piece of, you know, 24 ton fiber will just be like kind of a wet noodle and it'll just flop right over on itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're working with that at the factory level, what, what you see is that effectively, because you can't really wrap that super high modulus fiber around shapes very, very, uh, very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can a little bit, but it'll usually just crack in your yeah, hand. Sure. You start to get very square, very straight uh, plies. Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to place those plies on the outside of the tube shapes, it really behooves you to have some flat surfaces. And we'll look for what you call the bright line on a tube. And the bright line is the same as like a car or something like that, where there's just like one spot that's a highlight that sticks out a little bit more proud yeah. than the rest. Uh, airfoil sections have a pretty well established bright line. Mm-hmm. You know, we use a lot of NACA profiles and they're always at about 30% depth on that tube shape. And that's the typical NACA, uh, double zero profiles. They all are widest at 30%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where we'll hit, hit with the really high modulus fibers along the outside walls, because it gives you the most value because you're, you're getting the most E you can get the highest modulus because you're using stiff fiber. You get the most I that you can because it's the furthest out from that neutral axis. Mm-hmm. So that's really the game. And of course, then you throw arrow into there and then, then you get into what's called an optimization problem, which you know is uh, food for supercomputers, basically, where it'll vary those two parameters, that width, um, as well as the arrow, the arrow performance of that tube. So it'll fiddle, fiddle back and forth with that, and that's where truncation start to become a, a really big driving factor. Uh, and depending on what kind of bike you're making, if you're making like a full gas TT bike, you know you're going to go away from truncations and you're going to go more towards a fully uh, like a fully formed airfoil, airfoil yeah. um, and then if on a bike like our austro where you know rob uh, our owner said no it's got to be below 800 grams mm-hmm. you know we had to look at that truncation pretty hard right yeah, that was, yeah. uh, was a big balancing act there yeah. and for those of you who have listened to the tech pod you've probably heard the term truncated airfoil before but just to clarify truncation is basically when you essentially cut off the back end of it. Um, and so in this sense, what they're, what you're doing is you're creating a tube shape that's a, an airfoil, but the back of that tube shape doesn't go full airfoil like an airplane wing. Instead, it gets sort of chopped earlier. Um, that kind of gives you the best benefit of aerodynamics without adding a ton of weight and staying within uh, various frame regulations that guys like Graham are, are bound to, for better or worse. Um, so... Graham, when you when you guys uh, sit down to design a bike uh, frame, specifically a frame, um, obviously stiffness is a big design goal. Uh, but you know, I assume there's other factors that go into it. I mean, you know, for for example, now you've got, you know, you've worked with Cavendish in the ba- in the past, uh, and that was that's a very specific type of rider, and now you're going to be working with Chris Froome, very different type of rider, so. Clearly, b- between an aero bike and a climbing bike, the stiffness goals are going to be different. But now we're seeing uh, climbing bikes sort of become, in a sense, aero bikes. 
how do your stiffness goals change uh, to, to accommodate those types of riders now, given that climbing bikes now have to have aero elements to them? Well, again, you know, like there's an absolute um, quantity of stiffness, and that's where, you know, guys like Andre Greipel, who we work with now, um, you'll see him almost predominantly on the one, which is our aero road bike. And it's it's got a really cool feature with a split down tube. And what that primarily allows you to do is, again, get that material out as far as ways you can from the neutral axis. Um, so it's extremely stiff. Uh, it's definitely class leading actually tour. You know, we I can say whatever I want, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> Tour Magazine just did a did an independent test. And although I don't always 100 percent agree with their protocol, I mean, it was it was one of the stiffest bikes that they've tested, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and. That bike kind of respects that golden ratio on one side, on the higher side, which appeals to bigger riders that manipulate their bikes more. And and they really, you know, uh, uh, Rolf Aldeg described it really well to me when I was trying to basically give the team a flexi bike for Robay. And he goes, no, no, he goes, you don't want that. And he says, you're going 55K an hour and you want to change line or avoid a pothole or jump on a wheel. Yeah. He says, you need a bike that responds. Sure. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's, that's kind of the other extreme of it is that where do we find that kind of middle ground? And one of the things that we're doing as as a brand with Factor, because we're a much smaller company, we're much more agile, we own our own factory, we're actually starting to put it to the team a little bit, where we'll send them you know, three or four different bikes. So I did that with Nils Pollitt this year. I sent them three or four different bikes for Roubaix, and I changed chainstay lengths, and I changed head tube angles and stiffness profiles and a few other things. And I said, hey, man, you tell me what you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And the, he ended up coming back with a certain recommendation. Unfortunately, Roubaix didn't run this year. Right. Um, but you know, what we're starting to do is a little bit more of that kind of stuff where we put it out there to the team, they kind of taste test it and they let us know where they'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing we're able to do as a brand as well as, uh, with the O2 VAM and the regular O2, we're able to create two different stiffness profiles and two different ride tones between those bikes. Um, and what you'll find, and at least this is what I found, uh, even back when I was working in a retail setting, uh, many years ago is that, you know, there's different kinds of riders and you can look for those clues from the riders. So if, if a rider comes up to me and they're talking about, you know, should I buy a, a what, what bike should I buy from the factor range? And I'll take a look at some of those nonverbal cues that they're, they're already giving you. You know, are they wearing gloves? Um, have they double wrapped their bar tape? You know, do they have thick socks on? Um, you know, in some extreme cases, do they have no socks on? Right. Are they maybe using like black uh, Shimano? Yeah, you know the guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was just making faces <laughs> at the no socks comment. <laughs> Everybody knows the no socks guy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, at any rate, the, uh, you, you look for those nonverbal cues and you start to understand what is that rider really after and what are they seeking to do? Are they seeking to insulate themselves from the road surface because there's maybe some comfort issues or they don't really like it? Or are they the kind of riders that you know ride with no gloves and, and like a bit more tire pressure um, and really, really revel in that feeling, that road feel that comes up through the bike? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And that stiffness profile and the weight and the resulting wall thickness and carbon uh, really really starts to drive um, that ride feel that comes through the bike. You know, we've all ridden those bikes like our, our VAM. When you ride it, it's just like totally electric. It feels fantastic. You love the road feel through it. But you know, if you're riding on six hours of chip and seal, you know, you might start to feel that that kind of electric road feel is a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and that's the liveliness that you get with a 600 gram frame uh, with super thin walls. Um, versus a, a frame with a little bit more subdued layup, a little bit more stiffness, and a little bit more wall thickness. And, and you know, the easy the easy kind of way to explain that is if you took a marble or a ball bearing and you put it in a soup can and you shook it around, it would make kind of a thunk, thunk, thunk sort of noise. And you took that same ball bearing, you put it in a pop can or a beer can and you shook it around, it would go ting, 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 because it's a much thinner wall. Mm-hmm. And so you get the same effect through frames as well. And a lot of people correlate that with comfort. 
And so that's where, you know, when you have sort of two very different riders like that, like Chris and, and, and Andre, um, you try to look at what, what are they trying to tell you with their kit setup? You know, even if you look at their body position, um, you know, certainly some riders prefer a lot of setback. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of cases, what they're looking for is just displacement from the seat post as you get up further behind the bottom bracket. And, you know, riders can't always contextualize that and they don't always know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. But, you know, again, it's our job as an engineer or as a, as a you know, uh, unbiased observer to read into what they're doing and to try to help them get the best experience. Um, and that that's what as a brand we're trying to do is we're trying to hit that middle ground where, you know, maybe that's not 100% the bike for every single person. Mm-hmm. But, hey, we've got another bike over here that that would probably suit you way better. Sure, sure. So I want to get back to uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier. Now, you know, Factor has an in-house um, component brand, Black Ink. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about once you've got that frame designed, uh, there are so many other factors that will dictate factor. Haha, <laughs> get it? Um, <laughs> sorry, that, that was horrible. That was a dad joke. Um, yeah, there's so many other factors that really affect how the bike will handle uh, in, in various situations, particularly while cornering, especially at high speeds. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, particularly, I guess the, the big ones would be wheels, of course, uh, but handlebars, I think, and stems can also affect uh, the way a, a frame flexes. And every fl- frame or every bike flexes uh, when it goes through a corner. That's that's unavoidable, and it's, it's probably not something you would want to avoid anyway. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the interplay of, of your frames? Once you've got that frame designed, do you have to like make tweaks to it once you pair it with certain components uh, or is, or is the componentry sort of separate uh, from the frame itself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, handlebar stiffness and stem stiffness is like a, a whole incredible ball of wax um, that I've spent many years trying to unravel. And it's, I think that the only way to describe it, uh, concisely is that it's very, very complicated. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you will find and it's, it's not so much even complicated as it's very, very variable. Um, you know, particularly, uh, with modern fit with people not, um, using the drops quite as much as what they used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was racing, uh, basically the gun would go off and you'd get in the drops and then whatever, two hours later when the crit ended, you would come out of the drops yeah. and that would be that. Whereas now you see a lot of riders that don't spend you know, very, they spend very little to no time in the drops. And so over the years, I've created a number of bars that had had more flexible drops, thinking that that would be more comfortable. And, and actually, believe it or not, the more flexible the handlebar is the and stem, the significantly easier it is to pass ISO testing, uh, which is relatively violent on handlebars and stems. There's, there's two, uh, there's sort of two major tests that really mess your stuff up. Um, that's the in phase and the out of phase. So it's, you have a left, a load on the left and the right shifter and in phase, it pushes up and down. And it really bends the stuff quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then out of phase, it's reverse. So it twists, it twists it up. And what you'll see there is you'll, you'll, if you have a really stiff stem, you'll break your bolts is mm-hmm. typically where they fail. Um, you don't very often see the drops themselves actually break. Um, but then you start to get into, you know, which dimension are you stiffness or are you evaluating stiffness from in the drops? Is it pushing down? Is it pulling up? Is it squeezing them in from the side? Is it twisting them out of phase? So left and right opposite of each other. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's just a whole big ball of wax. So yeah, yeah. again, we, we try to come down in the middle. Um, we actually have a really interesting test program going right now with the team where we've made a whole mess of different stiffness drops and tops. And then we, we like make a big matrix and we combine them all up. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a really nice one-piece bar stem system that we, you know, basically all of our bars that, I mean, we sell in volume are one piece, 
we do have a separate bar stem system as well that we'll provide to the team and some cost, you know, it's available to buy on our website. Um, but you know, predominantly people go for our one piece because it's super lightweight and it looks really nice and the computer mounts great and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've been doing is for the team is we've been doing all these different layups where the top is a little bit stiffer and the drops will be more flexible or the drops will be more stiffer and the tops will be more flexible or it'll be just extremely stiff. Um, and you know, the, I think we're basically coming to the conclusion that everybody has their own opinion uh, about these things. So we, we've been really endeavoring on our new systems, like on the Austro with integrated cabling. Uh, we've, re- you're definitely able to use your own bar and stem. Um, you know, there's a little bit of accommodation that has to be made there with this, with the bar selection and the stem selection, just so the cables can get down, down through the, the top cap. But that was a big, a big, big impediment, uh, to, to customers for us is forcing them to use a particular bar or stem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go down an inch and an eighth at the top. It's just a standard size bearing. There's nothing weird there at all, but, um, yeah, I mean that that is a big ball of wax with handlebars, yeah. uh, stem stiffness, and it does. It, there is a significant interaction effect there with the frame, especially when you get into bayonet um, style uh, interfaces like we have on our one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, big ball of wax. Yeah, yeah. That. I mean, how about wheels? I know you you were just talking about wheels a little while ago about uh, how you guys are analyzing now. You know, the interface between the the spoke nipple and the rim, and and um, you know. we always talk about, you know, from my end anyway, I test so much gear. And uh, one of the ways that I'm always saying you can change the ride quality of your bike is just just trying new wheels. Um, So when you guys uh, create a frame, I mean, obviously, like for a lightweight climbing bike, you're going to put lightweight climbing wheels on it. Um, But putting a deeper section wheel on it will actually change the ride quality pretty considerably. Um, Is that something you can account for in the design process? I mean, do you think about that? Or do you just basically design the frame specifically for the wheels you know you're going to stock with it um no we we put a lot of work into that and one of the kind of mantras that we've we've taken on as a brand right now and it's 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 been a challenge because it's you know we're a small company is that when we launch a new bike we will launch a mating wheel with it Mm -hmm. um and so that's kind of been our policy uh for a little bit now we you know um it's it's hard to get up to speed with that kind of stuff just because it's a lot more development and, and so we really very much end up having two development paths uh, running, uh, you know, black ink on one side and factor on the other side, uh, with a lot of shared resources in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I definitely lead both those teams, and we have some really strong guys on both of those teams. But there's a lot of crossover back and forth. Uh, test lab, for example, is the same test lab. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and when we've done that, so we we made it the uh, 20, which is our new climbing wheel with the uh, the new O2 with integrated cabling. Um, we've most recently just launched a 45 with the Austro, which is a mid depth, and you can start to see the pattern to my, you know creativity or lack thereof you know we have a 16 we have a 30 you know what's halfway between 60 and 30 is 45 <laughs> um, so it's you know we're, we're we're sort of um we're sort of on that on going down that road right now but it it starts to open up a bunch of really uh interesting cans of worms when it's not just that way that the like the actual rim rides it's also how the whole system interacts mm-hmm. uh which includes sidewall stiffness from the tire uh which is you know again a function of the width of the rim and the type of the bead hook. We're, we're experimenting with some bead hooks right now. Um, we're, we're certainly not at the point where we're going to uh, kind of force our customers or push our customers to adopt hookless, uh, just because we feel like it's still not necessarily a slam dunk for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that I'm, you know, I'm always guilty of is I build bikes for people that buy bikes. Um, I don't build bikes for fashion contests or wheels for fashion contests. And I still see the vast majority of people that I ride with that I see out on their bikes are still struggling to adopt road tubeless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are really strong proponents of it. And, you know, I've certainly tried it lots of times myself. Uh, but, you know, especially like where I live, I mean, 
if I get a flat a year, it's kind of surprising. You know, yeah. it's it's not a very flat prone place. So a lot of the benefits of, of tubeless are somewhat moot for me. Sure. Um, you know, so it's, you know, we're, that's one of those variables that we're also working with. And, and how do you, you know, for example, when you change to hookless bead profile, you know, your, our rim right now is 20.87 millimeters wide at the hook. And when you remove those hooks entirely, you go hookless, uh, that rim gets significantly wider right. between a, between a bead seat, mm-hmm. which then changes the way that the tire sits on it, which then changes the sidewall stiffness, uh, which changes everything. So it's, there's a lot going into there for sure that that's above and beyond just simply the rim stiffness itself, which is, you know, we do a fair number of uh, non-built and then built uh, rim stiffness tests. Uh, we do lateral stiffness. We do vertical, like a compressive stiffness test. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do the assembled test. Um, you know, of course, there's the UCI impact test where we hit it with an impactor and check for trueness. Um, you know, we do uh, a lot of different testing with the wheel. And it, I guess at the end of it, uh, the best way to summarize it is that we're, we're sort of constantly improving and refining it. And a good example is we're, we're looking to use the carbon spokes from Strenbike right now that are a couple, couple people are using. And the big, the big benefit for us is that they're about 30%, um, about 30% stiffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also significantly stronger, but you know, at that same weight, they displace uh, significantly less than a steel spoke does, mm-hmm. which then changes the wheel that way that wheel rides. And that'll change that comfort level and that overall handling, uh, experience on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we are cognizant of wheels getting too stiff, though. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's definitely, again, with with any of this. I mean, wheels can get too stiff, frames can get too, too stiff, and that affects not not only just the comfort but also the ride quality. Um, which you know, I'm starting to get the sense, Graham, that this whole bike design thing isn't just gluing tubes together. <laughs> so it sounds kind of complicated. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, again, like the thing is, I think that there's probably a lot of people that don't agree with my ideas on it. And I think that that's awesome because I think that we should have different tastes. Um, you know, we were joking earlier about your whiskey podcast. It wouldn't be much of a whiskey podcast if all the whiskey was the same, yeah. you know, it's the same thing with bikes. You know, we, we have a very unique flavor, um, of our bikes at factor and it's really born from the fact that like our owner rides significantly more than I do. Sure. Our sales director just won the Taiwan KOM. I mean, I've been racing riding forever. Um, you know, and there's, there's legitimate miles that could put on that product and by, by really fussy people that have ridden a ton of stuff. And I think one of the things that we really have going for us, that's a big positive is we're not afraid to be wrong. Um, you know, if, if we have a customer or a rider or a pro or a journalist or somebody who has a different point of view than us, we're not going to go, well, it's not the way, you know, this is the way we're going to say, no, that's an interesting thought. What, how could we incorporate that into our future development? Yeah. Well, if I'm, to be, if I'm to believe Twitter, I mean, we journalists are always wrong, so. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I got, I've got a family and, and a bunch of kids, so I'm always wrong, too, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there you go. Okay, so you know how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything we're forgetting before we uh, wrap this up about, um, specifically about frame stiffness, that people need to know? I mean, you know, I guess, for example, I mean, it, you know, you guys are designing bicycles for pro riders. I mean, as a as a consumer who maybe isn't a pro rider, but still does ride, you know, seriously tries to get KOMs, tries to be competitive. I mean, should I be looking at something differently than, than the pros would, uh, in terms of frame stiffness? Do I need the, the stiffest frame? Um, you know, is there, are there other considerations that I should think about when I walk into the store to buy a frame? No, I would say that you should just probably try to, um, connect with somebody at the brand or at the store level who, who's ridden a bunch of bikes and who can kind of speak intelligently about it and talk about what your actual needs and what your, your interests are. Um, you know, and much like there's many different kinds of riders, there's many different kinds of pros. They're not all just painted with one brush. 
I mean, even just from a size perspective, uh, the variability in the size of riders is is tremendous. I mean, we had, I had Max Walshteed on on some bikes a year or two ago, and he's like humongous. And then you have like really really small riders. On the other hand, where you're you're almost like scratching your head about should we do a size 46 or not because their fit so compromised. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that within a good product offering, like we've got like kind of a robust product offering, there should be room for different kinds of riders and different kinds of bikes. And one of the things that uh, I'm quite evangelical about is is decoupling the intended use from the feature set with the bike. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're saying to me that, you know, like the, the Ostro is a great example that we just put out. We had in our product brief that I wrote a year ago, uh, we said uh, written by Dan Martin and Andre Greipel. And you know what? You know what? An outstanding year we've had. I mean, Andres he struggled a bit coming back from from uh, injury, but Dan rode that. He even rode that bike in the TT. Yeah. Um, we had you know quite a debate about, and what we ended up doing is we looked at the yaw profile on that day, and we found that there wouldn't be that big of a delta for him, and he was more comfortable on it. Um, you know, and so just because the bike has big tire clearance doesn't mean Dan Martin can't ride it uh, to a Grand Tour win. Sure. You know. Sure. Just because Dan Martin rode it at a Grand Tour win doesn't mean that uh, Nils Pollock can't ride it at Roubaix. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's something that I think the industry as a whole could do better service with. You know, like you don't, just because it's got big tire clearance doesn't mean that you should have, you know, your hands up in the air or like uh, you know, the chain stays would be like super long. Yeah. You know, um, I think we should look at the way that riders are using our bikes. And then, you know, there's lots of different brands up there as well. I mean, Factor, like I say, we have our flavor within the brand. We even have some different variations therein. Um, you know, and, and the highest end bike isn't always the right bike for for different people. And if you go to a shop that's experienced and skilled and open minded, and you know the riders themselves, you'll probably get guided towards a bike that you'll be super happy with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and just bear in mind that as you said, you can overdo things sometimes. And just because it's good for a pro doesn't mean it's good for you. Yeah. But you know, uh, look at the two of us for example. We you know we're we're pretty different styles of riders. We sit on the bike quite differently. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, the same bike wouldn't be good for both of us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll align on exactly what we think is a great bike. Right, exactly. Graham, thanks for uh, thanks for your time today. That was pretty fascinating stuff. And um, for any of you guys listening today, if you have questions about this podcast episode, because there's a lot of uh, pretty in-depth information, please do feel free to reach out to me. You can uh, get me dcavallari at velonews.com. You can also find me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at uh, browntiedan. Um, and feel free to ask me questions about this podcast or any of the other podcasts you listen to in the Velo News atmosphere. And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode of the Velo News Tech Podcast, I would absolutely love to hear it. Graham, thanks again for joining me. It's awesome to talk to you. Thanks, Dan. And uh, for those of you listening, we'll catch you next time.